Exodus 15, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read Exodus 15, 1 through 18. That's a lot to read, and so I know I'm asking a lot for you to be able to stay focused, but it's a poem. Well, really, it was a song, and we want to really get the feel for the whole thing just before we read it, just to remind us where we're at. People of Israel were in Egypt 400 plus years. They have just been come out of Egypt. God freed them from Egypt. Uh, last week, we talked about them crossing through the Red Sea. So God divided the Red Sea. They crossed through the Red Sea, and they made it through the Red Sea, and Egypt's chariots um, didn't, I guess is the short way of saying that. And so now, Exodus 15, verse 1, they are singing a song um, about the Lord's victory uh, over Egypt. So this is a, a song, uh, a poem that it's intended to evoke emotionally what it felt like to be delivered uh, by the Lord. So I'm going to read Exodus 15, 1 through 18, and then we'll uh, spend a little bit of time in this this morning. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 11, if you have lost your place. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign 
forever. This is, this is God's word. The helpless made victorious. The helpless um, made victorious. That's what this song is all about. This song is all about, in several different ways, explaining how people who were completely and totally helpless were made into victors. And there's just three, there's a whole bunch of things going on in this poem. We just simply don't have time to go through them all. So I'm really going to just focus on really uh, four different ways to understand how the helpless are made victorious. And we're going to start with God himself. The helpless are made victorious by the power of God. Thank you, Captain Obvious, right? Is that what you're saying? I came all the way out for you to tell me that. Well, it's not so obvious. We need to pay attention to this. The helpless were made victorious by the power of God, and they were so awed by the power of God, so overwhelmed by it, that they broke out into a song. Power is impressive when we see it. See, the Egyptian army, if you would have come to Egypt on maybe the day of their military parade and they would have run all their chariots by in front of you, the thousands and thousands of chariots storming past on a military parade, your response would have been, whoa. Whoa, these guys are, are powerful and they know what they're doing. And, and that's what Moses wants us to do, not about Egypt, but about God. Because power, when we see it, raw power, when we see it, we stand back and go, Whoa, that's, that's impressive. Do you know what the biggest com uh, internal combustion engine is on planet Earth? It's a big one. I would tell you the name of it, but it's made in like Finland. And Finnish words are like seven consonants and then one vowel at the end that's not used. And so I can't pronounce it for you, but let me put it this way. The thing has 14 cylinders. That's not impressive. It's two and a half tons. Well, yeah, it's heavy. It's 44 feet tall. That's taller than this room, if you're wondering how high 44 feet tall is. It's 87 feet long. That's a big engine. And you say, well, how, many horse, how much horsepower does it have? A couple. It's got 100,000 horsepower. And what do you use this engine for? A very, very big motorcycle? I mean, I don't understand. What do you... <laughs> it's used in cargo ships. The largest cargo ships in the world utilize the largest and most powerful engine in the world. If you were seeing this thing, and some of you are Googling it right now, I know how you roll. You sit back and you go, holy cow, that thing is huge. And this is what this poem does for God. We're supposed, what, what in the world? This guy is huge. The power of God is demonstrated by how he sings of what God did to the nation of Egypt and their entire military. The nation of Egypt had the most powerful military on planet earth, completely unstoppable, and here's how he describes the Lord's victory. The horse and rider he's thrown into the sea. He says, he had a piece of garbage and he wadded it up and tossed it in the trash can. His power was so incredible that he took all of the hordes of Egypt's military might and just simply gathers them up and says, oh, I guess I'll put them in the ocean. It's, it was that simple. It required... It didn't even require both hands. He just needed his right hand. His left hand, he was still texting. I don't know. That's ridiculous. I don't know why I said that. But, but, but he, it's so casual. It's, oh, I'll just take care of this over here. I'll just take care of the largest military on planet Earth. When afterthought. Oh, I need to get groceries later. That's, I mean, just, and the idea is we go, whoa, this, this is a big and powerful God. And what Moses is doing with this song, what he's doing is, is 
all of a sudden when they see the power of God, they sort of spontaneously, in a sense, they start cheering. And this isn't a complicated idea. When you're at the home football game and the home team scores a touchdown, everybody stands up and screams, right? We know what this is like, and this is what's happening is God has this victory, and all of Israel goes, whoa, let's have a dance party. And they get their tambourines out. I know normally we wouldn't, but back then that was like getting a DJ. They, and they just have a big, they have a party and they start singing. This God is huge. This God is powerful. This God is mighty. And Moses stands up, God is powerful. We have had victory because God is powerful. Look at verse 2 of Exodus 15. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So this is what the song says about the people of Israel. They say, I have two strengths. I have my strength, and then I see over here God's strength. You know what I think I'm going to do? How about instead of me being strong, I'll just have his strength. So he says, God is my strength. My personal strength in this victory counts for nothing. In fact, we might say it this way. My personal strength not only counts for nothing, if I were to try and use my personal strength in this victory, it would get in the way. My job here is to be strengthened by the Lord, not to be strong. The way the helpless are made victorious are by being completely useless. What the helpless bring to the equation is what? Helplessness. God doesn't need a hand. He doesn't need help. He doesn't get us 99% of the way there and then ask us to get the 1%. God just says, guess what? You be useless. I'll be awesome. You just do the cheering at the end. And Moses says, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. He has become my salvation. The way the helpless are made victorious are by the power of God, but we should say it this way, the, help, the not helpless aren't victorious. The only ones made victorious here are those who are completely helpless. The helpless are made victorious by the power of God himself. Look at verse 3. Look how it describes God. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Not that they were confused about his name, but this was a statement of authority that he is God in heaven, the God above all others. God is a fighter. God is at war. God does not stand idly by when his enemies are confronted. God will destroy all who oppose him. And when did this war start? This war start when Pharaoh rolled out the uh, chariots? No, this war started long before then. This war start when Israel was taken captive 400 years earlier? No, the war started long before then. The war started in the book of Genesis. The war started when God creates creation and his creation said, no thanks. You say, when did they do that? When you and I said, God, you're great and everything, but I think I'm awesomer. God, we understand that we can come to you for love and devotion and everything we need, but I see on this forbidden tree that if I eat it, I can have the knowledge of good and evil without having to know you. I can finally be what I've always wanted to be, the God of my own life. And so we rebelled against God and we separated ourselves from God, and in that moment, we experienced something that we've been experiencing ever since, a slow death. To be separated from God is to die. To, separated, to be separated from God is to be ruled by our rebellion. And God said this back in Genesis, you, we are not going to turn there. He says, regarding the enemy, I will what? 
crush his head. So this is the moment the war started. We started it in rebelling against God. And ever since God says, I am a man of war, I will defeat my enemies. And we see here that great enemy, sin and rebellion, in this important event in the life of Israel, made real, made personal, made Egyptian. And that, that great army, that great horde, enemy of God who was seeking to destroy his people, God says, let me show you what I do with my enemy, sin and death. I cast them into the sea. I will crush his head. If you were a betting person, how much money would you have put on Egypt against God? Well, of course, you know how it ends, right? It wasn't even close. It's not even close. God is a fighter. He does not stand idly by. He will destroy his enemy. And in where we have to fit this, this, uh, this event of Israel being destroyed. Uh, are we doing English today? English is in my first language. I'm, I have the word. I just can't get it to come out of my mouth. Where we fit this event in the history of what God is trying to tell us. Because notice this event occurs in the Bible, right? And what's the Bible about? Jesus saves sinners. So we learn at the beginning of, of what God has been telling us, God is going to make war with his enemy. How we fit this event into that narrative of, is God showing us, I don't lose against my enemies. I don't lose against those who would uh, destroy my people. God is the ma a man of war against sin. God is a man of war against death. The only constraint to God's power is his nature. The only thing that holds God's power back is his own purposes and his own will. Another way to put it this, is this way. God is not to be trifled with. God is God. And he is powerful. And he does not lose. And he always gets his way. And thank God for his people, his way is always really, really good. But for those who would oppose him, there is no worse place to be. Just ask the Egyptian swim team. It's terrible. Why would you say something? The helpless are made victorious. We start with God, the power of God. Let's continue on. Look at verse 4. We're going to continue on. God is powerful, but we need to understand our enemy. The enemy never quits. And pay attention to this, because this is critical as we look at this. If we had our way, we would befriend the enemy. Helpless made victory. The, excuse me. Helpless made victorious. First, we said the power of God. And secondly, let's look at the relentless enemy. The relentless enemy. Do you remember when that tsunami hit Japan? That was a few years ago, wasn't it? And this is going to sound weird, but one of the things I really like to do, and I don't mean like liked... It was interesting to me. That's a better way of saying it. You could go on YouTube and you could watch the tsunami. Anybody else do that? Nobody's going to raise their hand because you know what? That seems weird. But you could watch videos, like 15, 20 minute videos of these harbors in Japan, which are these calm harbors. And then all of a sudden, the water would kind of go down a little bit. And then all of a sudden, like the water just keeps coming in. What, what's amazing about a tsunami, sometimes the way we might have imagined it is this thousand foot wave that just crashes over the shore. That's not the way those tsunamis were working. All of a sudden, the water just comes up. And I remember this one video I was watching. This, this guy's on this three- or four-story building, and he's filming. And this canal kind of fills up, and then it's leaking out onto the road. And you're like, oh, boy, that's, 
that's too bad. And then pretty soon the road is covered. And then pretty soon cars are like being washed away. And then it actually gets to the point where you think, I don't think he's on a tall enough building. I mean, this water is up four or five stories. There's houses flowing by. Do you remember, is it just me? There's, I mean, it's amazing. The, a tsunami never stops. How do you stop a tsunami? You go somewhere else. There's no stopping it. And this is the way the enemy is. It is relentless. It is unstoppable in its pursuit of us. Look at verse 9 of Exodus 15. This is what Egypt said. Again, evil personified in this song. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Just drunk with power, mad with revenge. How insane do you have to be to ride a chariot full speed into a giant valley of ocean? Like on each side, hundreds, if not thousands of feet of water straight up. Is there no one on the chariot force that goes, um, I don't know if we have the insurance for this. I, I mean, I would think somebody would say, are you sure? But just like a, like a mad horde, because they think nothing can stop them. And this is the enemy, just relentless pursuit. Charges into the open sea. And the people of Israel walk through on dry land, and the sea comes in on them. Here's something I want us to pay attention to, and you can turn, uh, if you want to, Exodus 14.10. I want us to see a theme that we're going to see all the way through the book of Exodus. Exodus 14.10. This was a little bit earlier. The people of Israel were by the Red Sea, and uh, they did not know yet what God was going to do. And Pharaoh was going to come out and maybe either recapture them, but most likely kill most of them. Verse 10 says this, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Okay, that's good. Good, healthy fear. Good move. Pray. Okay, but here's what they said, and this is what follows this verse. They said this to Moses. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt you brought us out into the wilderness to die? What have you done to us bringing us out to Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What did they just say? Egypt is better than God. Egypt, which is evil personified, their captors personified, the ones who have enslaved them, they're, they are now saying, we would rather be enslaved in Egypt than depend on God in the wilderness. This is going to happen over and over and over again. We're going to cover the first one next week. They're going to run out of water, and they're going to say, oh, we wish we were back in Egypt. The next chapter, they're going to run out of food. They're going to say, oh, we wish we were, going to, we were back in Egypt. A little bit later on, they're going to run into the enemy, the Amalekites, the Moabites, the Edomites. And they're going to say what? Oh, we wish we were back in Egypt. So here's the thing what we have to pay attention to. If not for God's work, if God were not the victor, the enemy wouldn't need to conquer us. We would just simply hang out with them. If it wasn't for God's power, we would welcome the enemy. Think about it. How much military does Egypt have left 
after the Red Sea has washed out back into its normal course? What do they have? They've got like the cooks. I mean, they didn't go into the Red Sea. The, the Egypt's military is completely decimated. At this point, if Israel wanted to cross back over the Red Sea, they could send over their teenage boys with, uh, with uh, the slingshots, and they could defeat all of Egypt. They have no military. Anybody who wanted to at this point could walk into Egypt. And this is what Israel is saying. This is mind-blowing. Egypt's been defeated. Hey, guys, why don't we go surrender to them? Like, why do you have to do that? They've been completely wiped out. And this is what is crazy, is they will continue to seek to surrender back to a powerless Egypt rather than have relationship with God in the wilderness. They would take enslavement to sin that has no power over relationship with God during difficult times. The enemy is relentless, even when rendered powerless. Strider said this to Frodo Baggins when he was being pursued by the ring race. If you don't know what I'm talking about, well, I don't have time to explain it. <laughs> Do you, are you afraid? And he said, yes, I'm afraid. And Strider says to him, not nearly enough. I know what hunts you. And then he says this, they will never stop hunting you. This is the enemy. He will never stop hunting us. Sin and death will never stop. It is relentless, even though rendered powerless. In our weakness, we will often take friendship with the enemy, sin, over relationship with God, because where is God hanging out? In the wilderness, where it's hard, and where we have to, I don't know, trust him every single day or we die, and trust him every single day, especially on the day we die. In Egypt, Israel was mistreated. In Egypt, they were treated terribly and enslaved. Out in the wilderness, Egypt wanted to destroy Israel. And this is exactly how sin works. Sin doesn't seem that bad until you decide, you know what, it's time to resist. Sin is not that big a deal until you decide you're not going to do it anymore. Whatever your pet sin is, whatever your big deal is, you say, you know what, I'm done with that. God give me victory. And then what happens when, you, when that happens? When God makes a move in your life and you say, you know what? i got to make that a part of my past and not my future. I'm done with that. I'm going to do what's necessary by faith in God to eliminate that from my life by his grace. What happens? Nobody's ever done that before? I don't know how to say it politely, so I won't. All hell breaks loose. You, you don't know what difficulty is like till you decide to say, I'm done with this. Until you say, you know what, that is, that is not something that honors God. By grace in, I'm, and by faith in his grace and by repenting and by spending time in his word, I'm going to say, Lord, give me victory over this. You don't know difficulty until you do that. Because now the enemy who is relentless will pursue you all the more. Sin is the same as Egypt. It's really, really nice until you say no. The helpless made victorious. First thing we said what? The power of God. The story of victory, it begins with God himself. Secondly, a relentless enemy. Pay attention to this. The, the issue here is primarily not the enemy. The issue is we like the enemy. I'll just add this. I don't, I don't know if this makes any sense. Here's the thing. 
as long as you don't think you like sin very much, you are, you're never going to fight it. See, you don't really jump into the battle until you finally admit the problem is not primarily sin. It's me. I like it. We wouldn't sin if it wasn't fun. We, it, it wouldn't be a struggle of something we hated. Sin isn't going to the doctor and getting a shot, notice. I mean, we wish. Oh, I had victory over sin in my life because it's a sin to go get a, a shot at the doctor. No, it's not a sin. We wish it was. How about going to the dentist? Wish that was a sin. Pretty good at overcoming that one. But I'm not supposed to look at my buddy's truck and feel envious. Wait, no, that's not fair, God. You can't call what I feel a sin. That's not, that's not cool, bro. Because I'm pretty good at keeping it on the outside, doing a pretty good job staying uh, well-behaved. I mean, okay, I'm average. Okay, I'm, I'm below average, but... But the inside, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? Yeah, you're not supposed to be envious of the new house your buddy got. You're not supposed to be envious of the new job your, your buddy got. And we play around with it. And it's nice until it's resisted, and then it's deadly. Thankfully, though, the Lord has defeated it. Okay, we've got to keep moving on. Helpless made victory the relentless enemy, the enemy we love. Okay, how do we escape such an enemy? How do we get out of it? God is powerful. We're trapped by our own sin. How do we get at it? Look at, look at Exodus 15, uh, beginning of verse uh, 11. Helpless made victorious, and delivery is through victory. The helpless made victorious, delivered through victory. What do I mean by that? In a POW, say you're a prisoner of war. It's the middle of a war. You've been captured. You're in a, a prisoner of war camp, and your job as a prisoner of war generally is to try and escape or gather enemy intel and basically try and stay alive as best you can. And then the, the war ends without your permission, right? You're in there doing your job, and all of a sudden the war ends, and your captors run away, and your allies show up at the gate of the, at the prison, open the doors, and they say what? You're free. So this is the victory we've experienced in Christ. Our job is to be captive and wait for him to show up. We have been made victorious, not by anything we have done, but we have been made victorious by being freed from prison through his victory. Look at verse 13 of Exodus 15, uh, one of the stanzas in this poem. This is what, how Moses describes the Lord. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Israel, he's saying, was guided by God to his home. Uh, the, another way of uh, translating this would be this. Israel was carried by God to their resting place. God has the victory. God has the fame. God has the renown. God gets the military, military medal for the victory. The people's job is to be carried by the victor to the home that he's taking them to. He is the one that carries the redeemed. They're the helpless baby boy who is carried by his father over to the place where they are going to live. Deuteronomy 1.31 says this. I'll start in verse 30. The Lord your God goes before you and he will fight for you. Verse 31. In the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God 
carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. God does what for Israel through the wilderness? He carries them as a man carries his son. Now I know you have this very romantic notion of a man. Have the right picture of this, what's going on. What this is, is you're in Target, you've got a three-year-old boy. He has asked for a squirt gun. And you have said, not today. A little nuclear bomb of rage goes off in this three-year-old boy, and he uncorks a scream. They're not even going to have to call children and family services. They can hear it. (laughs) You then pick up the boy, and you carry him at a distance from your chest to refrain from getting an injury, and he's kicking and screaming. Anybody? Is this anybody? You have two kinds of parents who are watching you. The one kind of parent who's like, you got this. You got this. I'm with you. And then you got the other kind of parent. Oh, you're terrible. Judgy McJudge pants is what we call those parents. Or like your kids are perfect, right? Yeah, because you don't, you know, Benadryl, we're going to the store. So it's cheating. That is cheating. So you're carrying them out to the, and here, listen, parent hacks, I'll help you out. You're going out and you're saying, okay, it's okay. And you're real gently under, just a whisper, when we get to the car, it is on. I got tinted windows for this. So you're going out, that's, I'm not advocating child abuse, absolutely not, but good, strong parenting I'm advocating for. So you're carrying this kid out, kicking and screaming the whole, this is God carrying Israel. Have you read how they hacked? All the way from Egypt to the promised land, he's carrying them like a loving father who knows where they ought to be, and the whole way they're just pitching around. And he says, no, I'll I'll take you. God is a lot more patient with us than we are even with our own children. God carries his son tenderly all the way home. Over in Micah, we see this. Micah 7, 19. He will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. What does that remind us of? Reminds us of Genesis. I will crush his head. I will destroy my enemy. And what does he do to the enemy? And who is that enemy? You will cast all our Egyptians into the depths of the sea. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. I don't know why that's different, but that's okay. That's my, I, don't, I have no idea. Sorry, Laura, I put the wrong one in. Look in your own Bible, Michael seven nineteen. It's the way I read it. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. How does this work? So wh- th- here's what happens. We come into the world and we're born, and we start disobeying from the moment we're born. And we sin all the way through. And the Bible says, while we were still sinners, while we were in full-on rebellion against God, Christ died for us. The story of the Old Testament is a story demonstrating that someone can step in and pay the penalty for sin, but all the way through the Old Testament, we discover lambs, goats, sheep, none of those work. What we need is a perfect person who can take our penalty on himself. So Jesus dies on the cross as a man who has never sinned, who is God himself and bears on himself the penalty for all of our rebellion. And so our sin is handled. In that one moment, it is finished. All of our sin was cast into what? Into the sea. 
Three days later, he rises from the dead and says, you can now experience relationship with me in life because I raise you from the dead in me. So Jesus takes our sin and he casts it into the depths of the sea and says, now I've had victory over my enemy and your enemy has no power over you. This is how the psalmist said it in Psalm 103. Psalm 103, 12 says this, as far as east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So you've sinned, you've done some bad stuff, you like to pretend and maybe think that all of that bad stuff was long time ago before you knew Jesus, but actually most of it was yesterday what you're thinking about. And you say, God certainly couldn't like me because I'm not very good at being good. And then we read a verse like this, and the question is not, where is your sin? The question is, do you believe him? Well, certainly the verse says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us, as long as we promise to be really good. Now, if it said it, I promise you I would read it. But does it say that? He tells us this because he says, it is finished even though we continue to struggle with ongoing sin. Remember, he carried Israel through the wilderness even though they struggled over and over and over again with rebellion. God has thrown away our rebellion. God has thrown away our sin. We now stand in perfect relationship with him in the wilderness. One other psalm to look at, one you're familiar with, Psalm 23, and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. You may not have to turn there. It's up on the screen, but you probably have it memorized. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So Jesus has carried us by his grace into his presence, and we now experience the wonder of knowing that we lie down in green pastures. He waters us and pastures us and feeds us and restores us. That's wonderful. Where is all of this happening? In the wilderness. David continues down in verse 5 of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. So here's the thing. What we do is we have this picture of Psalm 23 and we imagine David sitting on a table in a beautiful meadow, a quiet stream trickling by somebody offering him a cold beverage, beautiful day out. That is not where this table is. Where is this table? It's in the middle of the desert. And the psalm reveals what it looks like to look at the world around us when we have faith in the Lord. He could look at the wilderness he lived in, in the presence of his enemies, and say, man, I think everything's looking pretty good. That was the challenge that Israel had in the wilderness. When they were in the wilderness with the Lord, what did they see? Sand. When David is in the wilderness facing his enemies, what does he see? The Lord and a well-provisioned table. He sees a pasture. Why? Because it doesn't need to have actual grass. If God wanted to, he could sprout up grass overnight. Our abode leads us to real food. Our abode in Christ leads us to the presence of God. We have to be aware, though, he is doing all of this in the wilderness. So at the Red Sea, after they had crossed over and the Egyptians had been uh, drowned, what we have to decide and what Israel had to decide in that moment 
was who was going to be their master. And the fact is, you don't get to be your own master. You get two choices. Egypt, who has no power, or God. And what they said in that moment, we would rather go back to Egypt and serve Egypt than serve God in the wilderness. We're made victorious, though, when we decide, you know what? Being with God in the wilderness, there's no better place to be. The helpless are made victorious. We are delivered through victory, specifically the victory that Christ had on the cross. Okay, the helpless made victorious. What are the three things we said so far? Number one, God is powerful. Number two, we're trapped in our sin. Number three, Christ is the one who gives us victory. Let's look at the last couple of verses, and then we're going to be done. Close with a couple of songs. Uh, I didn't read this before, so if you don't mind, I'm going to read verses 19 through 21. Is that okay? All right, good. So I was going to do it anyway. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, FYI, also the sister of Moses, she took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The question is this. God has power. God has uh, uh, defeated our relentless enemy. We have victory through Christ. The question then becomes, how do we respond? What is our response when we see how God has made the helpless victorious? And our response is a response of faith, the song of the saved. How do I experience this victory? Here, very simple, Acts 16.30. I'm going to start with Acts 16.30, and then uh, I'll read a little bit beyond it. Here's what one guy asked another guy, Paul. He brought them out, and he said this to them. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Okay, we've got a powerful God. We've got a relentless enemy. I've discovered I really like the enemy, but I also know that's going to kill me. I want to love God, but I can't. So what in the world do I do to be saved? They said, it's very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Anyone who believes in your household will be saved. How do I experience this victory? Quite simply, it's a matter of faith. I have to trust that what God has done uh, for me through Jesus takes care of my problem with sin. I have to trust that Jesus died for me and he raised from the dead so that I can look forward to life with him. That's how I experience this victory. The response to what God has done for victory is simply faith. Do I believe him? Do I trust him? A couple of other verses to remind us of ways that we can express this faith uh, in our life. First one is Zephaniah 3.17. Zephaniah 3.17. Uh, We put it on the screen, so you're welcome. You don't have to find Zephaniah in your Bible. Here's what God says. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. That's cool. Listen to this. He will rejoice. He will actually rejoice in singing over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. So God has just saved you kicking and screaming from your sin. What's his disposition toward you? He is singing over you. Just like a mother or a father would sing over a child who needs comforting. 
See, sometimes we assume that God has saved us and he spends the rest of our life standing in heaven with his arms crossed and then look at us like, really, I saved you? Oh, what a train wreck. I mean, that's what we imagine. And this is not God. Here he, He's walking us out to the car in the Target parking lot and they didn't pay me for this ad. And the whole way, he's just singing to us. I saved you. You don't have to worry about it. I know it's hard. I got you. I have saved you. His disposition toward us is singing over us with joy. And I would just simply ask us this question as those maybe who have put our faith in him, would we by chance like to join him? If God is going to take the time to sing over us because of the joy he has in saving us, is there any way we could gin up in our hearts some sense that we would want to join him in that song? One of the ways we express our worship, in, or I should say our faith to God, is by singing full-throated and saying, he's going to sing for me, I'm going to sing for him. And some of us say, I have a terrible voice. We agree. And that's not the thing. We didn't come here to hear a concert. We came here for a whole bunch of people with terrible voices to sing a terrible song. And parents, again, when your kid comes to you and sings an awful song off tune, what do you do? And that's awesome. And they spend the rest of their life thinking they're an amazing singer. But that's what he does. He wants to hear our voices. God's disposition towards us is lovingly singing over those he has saved, by faith, we can worship him and sing with him. Okay, next way we can apply it. Colossians 3.16 says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What's the word of Christ? Okay, I'll summarize it for you. Jesus saves sinners, I are one. The word of Christ dwells richly. You show up in church. What have you admitted when you show up at church? I'm a sinner and I need help. Some of you showed up in church and thought that's the way you showed you're not a sinner. No, if you're not a sinner, you don't eat church. Man, go to brunch. The word of Christ dwells with you when a bunch of people who need Jesus show up and say to each other, you need Jesus? Yeah, me too. Really bad. I mean, you don't know the week I had. Let the, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then what? Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together. When a group of sinners get together and agree with each other, if it weren't for Jesus, we'd be dead. If he is singing over us, will we join in singing with him together? One of the ways that we can express our faith that Christ saves sinners is to come together and sing together. You know, need to point this out. We don't have songs before the sermon to get your attention focused. We have songs because the Bible says we sing with God and one another because Jesus saves a bunch of sinners like us. I mean, it's fantastic. We can show our worship to God through faith by singing together. We've walked through the Red Sea together. We have been saved together. Let's sing together. Last verse, and we're going to close with this, Revelation 15, 3 through 4. Some of you, because you're stubborn like me, have been kicking against this through the whole message. You're convinced this story about the Red Sea has nothing to do with us or Jesus, has everything to do with a group of people taking a walk through the ocean. John, in the book of Revelation, would disagree with you. Revelation 15, 
verses 3 and 4, in heaven, John is painting the picture of heaven, and they sang the song of what? They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the... I think Jesus is in the Moses song. I think we're talking a little bit more about Israel than just Israel getting away from the Egyptians. The lamb was there. And he said, oh, you crossed the ocean? You ain't seen nothing. You think the Egyptians were tough? I'm going to take down Satan. I'm going to take down sin. I'm going to destroy it all. Victory is going to be awesome. The song of Moses and the lamb is not just merely our song today, not merely their song 3,500 years ago. This is the song for all of eternity. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Some of you are still arguing. You're saying they got the words wrong. I'll let you take that up with Jesus when you see him. This is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The king has victory over all of his enemies. It started in Genesis. Exodus 15 is just simply God saying, here we go, let me show you what I can do. And the cross is the culmination of that victory. And now we find ourselves living in the wilderness, walking with the Savior, and we have to fight every single day saying, do I go back and rejoin the powerless enemy, or do I love and worship my Savior in the wilderness? So God's disposition towards us is singing over us. Will we join him? We come through the sea together. Will we sing together? And finally, we look forward with Moses to the promised land, heaven. The question is this, are we willing even today to sing as heaven's people the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb?